0: Good morning, it's Friday the 26th of May and this is the Climate Alarm Clock. In this week's headlines, we are heading for uncharted territory as scientists warn that the planet will breach 1.5 degrees of warming in the next five years. And researchers in Belfast find that 50% of Earth's species are now in decline, while the debate here about the nature restoration law is heating up. Hello and welcome to the Climate Alarm Clock, your weekly Irish climate news podcast. I'm Anna Pringle and I am joined by Kira Daly as ever. Kira is joining us from an exotic location today. How are you getting on, Kira? I'm good, Anna. Don't be telling everyone I'm in Roscommon. <laughs> She's not in <laughs> Roscommon. She's in sunny Spain. Um but we are also delighted to welcome a very special guest this week and it's one of Ireland's leading, if not Ireland's leading environmental journalist John Gibbons. And John has been doing this for quite some time now and he runs the blog thinkorswim.ie and the website climatechange.ie. And he is a very regular contributor to climate debates in the media and has a column with the Irish Examiner. And despite being so busy and having appeared on Today with Claire Byrne and up front with Katie Hannan, he is now here with the climate alarm clock this morning. So we're delighted to have you, John. You're very welcome.
1: Well, thank you very much, Kira and uh, Anna. Good morning.
0: Welcome. Welcome to the loony bin. Yes, the loony bin is right. Um, So just a reminder, if you like the podcast, this is not directed at you, John. This is directed generally and you would like to support it. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash the climate alarm. And I have to share our favourite review of the week, which came from um, one of our friends and colleagues, Patrick Kirwan of the Irish Schools Sustainability Network. I don't know if you guys saw this, but he said uh, he was tuning into us on the way to work and he said, tough, uncomfortable conversations with laughter dispersed throughout, <laughs> chuckling through the madness. So <laughs> I'm not sure if he's talking about us being mad. I and mean, that sounds a bit mad, actually, to say we're chuckling through the madness, but I think we have to, we have to at least... Be able to have a laugh every now and then um, now before we go on to our news for the week John um, just sort of to give us a, a flavor for how long have you been doing this environmental beat and you know and what are some of the trends you've observed during that time I mean what's changed since you first started
1: yeah I guess I, I first got got involved in, in the public space uh, in early 2008 uh, when I uh, started a, a weekly uh, climate change column of the Irish Times that ran for about a hundred weeks, about two years, uh, and um, I think they had a change of mind actually in, in early 2010 about climate change, uh, and they, they, they decided they, it wasn't, they, wasn't a big deal. They really did, and, and anyway, look, these things happen, I guess. So, I, so that was my kind of, uh, shall we say, uh, induction into the into the the world. Because while I'm a journalist by training and background, uh, I had really. No background whatsoever in environmental journalism, and uh, I guess it's about probably about twenty years ago, so in other words, five years before that when my my uh, first uh, child was born, that I began to sort of look into the into the middle distance and uh, began to pay attention if you like to longer term trends and really that 's what set me off so I kind of spent the five years from i suppose two thousand and three maybe to two thousand to, to two thousand and eight kind of uh, i suppose yeah, coming to terms with, with uh, if you like, the environmental and the climate space, doing an awful lot of reading, going to a lot of lectures, uh, and basically filling myself in and, and get, trying to get my head around an area which, to me, was alien, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, because sometimes it's often said, you know, environmentalists can be shoved into a box saying, well, you, you, you guys say that because, you know… That's the way you were brought up, or whatever. But I'm I'm far, far from a tree hugger. I was actually brought up in, in uh, on a farm in rural Ireland, uh, and uh, so therefore I'm I won't say I'm the opposite of an environmentalist, but it's certainly not uh-huh. something not not Careful something now. yeah not something that 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 is in my DNA. Let's say, uh, but however, the facts is the facts, and yeah. I, I am led as a journalist, as a, as a person, I'm very susceptible to facts. And I find uh, factual evidence and scientific evidence very compelling. So I kind of have seconded myself uh, from my own day job, which is, in fact, uh, I'm I'm a co-owner of a a publishing business and have been for many years. Uh, So so I'm in the fortunate position of being able to steal from my employer uh, and uh, steal an awful lot of time to to put that time into environmental work, uh, an awful lot of which, of course, uh, as you can imagine, is uh, pro bono, uh, and if I were depending on it for an income, I'd be uh, living uh, under a bridge someplace. So, uh, <laughs> but that's fine. I mean, I'm in the privileged position of being able to to, to take some time to, to on this beat, and frankly, there is no more important beat.
0: Yeah, here, here, and fair play to you for for because it's a lonely road as well for you. Um, I, I probably less so now that the Irish Times now does have an environmental correspondent and. And, and Caroline O'Doherty and The Independent is doing great work. And so it's probably less so now. But I mean, at the start, the people must have been looking at you like, what are you talking about?
1: Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, I think there's, there's a few excellent people, uh, no doubt about it. Uh, there's, some, there's some excellent work being done in The Examiner and The Business Post, for yeah. that matter. Uh, it is, it is, it's more mainstream, but it is surprising how many journalists still genuinely See, this is completely passed them by. I was reading yep. a guy in the Irish Times the other day, and he was talking about kind of, if you like, doomsday cults. And he was sort of listing off all these things, all these scare stories we've heard down the years about doomsday oh, cults. Yes. And he included climate change in it. I'm not I'm not going to, embar- wow. I'm not going to embarrass him uh, by mentioning his name, but I just read it and I just thought, oh, my God, can you really be that long as a senior journalist in Ireland and you've never even read a book on the climate emergency. So yeah. it staggers me sometimes that the lack of perf- even personal curiosity in some people about it. Are, and I think maybe they've got their minds made up already. But if so, I'm sorry, they've really got to go back and pay more attention to this.
0: Yeah. yeah.
2: Can I ask you, John, like if you're working in this sphere for so long and you're coming up this so often, coming up against this kind of like just ignoring of the issue for so often, how do you um, kind of calm, because I'm getting annoyed just listening to that. How do you calm the frustration or the anger or whatever emotions you feel around it and kind of keep going with it? Because... Yeah, that's just like, I, we were only doing this a year and a half, and I'm already like, <laughs> so I can't imagine what I would be like after the length of time you're doing this.
1: Yeah, I think it's had the opposite effect on me, Kira. I've kind of gone into a Zen place with this. Um, I, I kind of feel there's, there's a saying I heard, it relates to the battlefield. And, they, <laughs> and, and it said that any soldier who enters the battlefield, the, the only way you can get through the fear and the anxiety is to work on the assumption that you're already dead. And therefore, every day that you're not dead is a bonus, right? So yeah. to, to some extent, I kind of think about this, you know, I, I understand this emergency um, exquisitely, painfully well, and yeah. it's it's crippling, but I can't allow myself to be crippled by it. So I've gotten, I've found ways of, of sort of, uh, I don't know, staunching off my, my fears and my anxiety because I I feel I'm no use to anybody else if I'm crippled with fear. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, the saying on an airplane that in the event of an emergency, put your own mask on first. Right. Then then you can help other people, because if you're choking and gasping and angry, you can't help anybody else. So I've done my, uh, if you like, long midnight of the soul and I'm sure there'll be more of them in the future. Uh, and I think at the end of it, I realized that if I want to be an effective communicator in this, uh, I have to do it cold. It's a bit like yeah. you don't want a you know, a surgeon, for example, who's squeamish uh, and you don't, <laughs> <laughs> and you don't yeah. want to, you don't want to, uh, you know, you've, we've got to be uh, both engaged and yet yeah. dis- disengaged. So I feel, uh, I feel mentally um, very engaged but emotionally, I'm able to to park those feelings when engaging because I also realize, and I guess I've done an awful lot of media work, and you know, I, f- I force myself to listen back to myself from time to time. Mm-hmm. And I do realize that oftentimes when people are listening, say, to a radio debate, they don't know the two people or the three people on yeah. the debate. They don't really yeah. know who they are. So they're listening for intonation, and they're trying to yeah. decide who's the least crazy person on the call, yeah. right? And they'll kind of go, yeah, I... I I think I like that person because he sounds less crazy than that person, and I've tried to be the person who sounds less crazy than the other person. Okay, and I'll. I wish
0: that was true. (laughs) I don't know. See some of the, um, you see some of the crazies that they keep trotting out. Um, But
1: yeah. Yeah, but uh,
0: yeah,
2: but that's entertainment value. Like what John is saying. When I listen to people like you on the radio, I can I feel. Calm. Like it, it reassures me because I'm like, oh, no, because I have these thoughts and this guy does not sound like a, an asshole, <laughs> for lack yeah. of a better term. I feel reassured and it, it actually, it, I, f- I find it really, really beneficial.
1: Well, cheers. I, I, and you see, I think that's exactly the point I'm making. Uh, I, and I'll and i admit in my early days in this, I felt very personally stressed. I think I was mm-hmm. I, I was overwhelmed by it. Also, I guess young kids at home, uh, my work pressures were, were much heavier at the time. And I just felt genuinely overwhelmed. And I found myself getting emotional. And I think people realised that they could kind of rile me up, right? And I found sometimes I was being badger baited in in discussions. And like an idiot, I was taking the bait, right? Yeah. And and one infamous occasion in uh, 2009, when I found myself in an actual shouting match uh, with Pat Kenny on his radio program for half an hour one morning. Right. And apparently it was absolutely gold radio. Right. But it left me, it left (laughs) me feeling devastated. And I'm not kidding. I felt physically ill for days after it. And I felt, I felt an emotional hangover from it that went on for, I'm not going to embarrass myself by telling you how, how long I felt bad about that. And I took a lesson away from it. And the lesson is, don't do that again because if i was going to behave like that and by the way i didn't behave badly but i allowed myself to get emotionally engaged yeah. and to yeah. be i allowed myself to be riled up uh, and it was very clever by the way on the part of the of the other side they they realized that that i had a vulnerability and they exploited it brilliantly but i realized that i couldn't be useful if i was going to lose the cool on radio, And I made a decision after that. If I'm going to continue to be in the media space, I've got to get a grip on myself. And I've tried to work on that ever since. And uh, so this is the new all improved 2.0 semi sane <laughs> version of me here before you.
0: <laughs> so we're our we're glad for- to have you. Our goal for today is to try to get John riled
2: up. (laughs) Good luck.
0: (laughs) No, I'm kidding. But I mean, it's it's, I mean it's very interesting, and you're right. Um, I mean, one of the things we do here is we do get into rants, but I think podcasting is a different kind of space, Um, and it gives it does give us the um, space to have those conversations and be honest about our emotions when they come up, you know, so, um, so it's a, it's a, it's a, very interesting point, but you're right. You, you are very effective because you always do come across as calm and reasonable, no matter who you're up against. So, um, so well done for sticking that out and going through that journey. I'm sure it hasn't been easy at times.
1: And it's not over, of course, it's, 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 it's always evolving and you're always yep. trying to, to learn from, and, and, you know, they say if you don't win the argument, at least you, you you learn the lesson and take it on to the next argument because there's always the next argument. So I do try to be as self-critical as possible to try and improve the argument because it's so bloody important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for taking the time to come and join us, John. We really appreciate it. Um, so will we talk about some of those important stories, um, and the first story that we are going to look at is the warning from the World Meteorological Organization, the WMO. Uh, and they came out um, after after we recorded last week. Actually, when we hit record last week, I was like, damn, we just missed some great stories here. But they, this came out just after we um, finished, where the WMO is now predicting that we will be more than 1.5 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels of global temperature for at least one year between 2023 and 2027. So now there is a 66% likelihood that that will happen. and that's kind of a lot of stats in there. But what that boils down to is it looks like we are going to exceed that Paris Agreement 1.5 degree target much earlier than expected and most likely within the next five years. So I kind of look at that and I go, is this really the only story... Um, this should have been, this is such a huge story. And yeah. it has gotten some coverage, um, but it's just a, I mean, it's it's a stunning story, really, in a lot of ways.
2: It's really scary.
0: <laughs> it is. Now, they do say we won't permanently exceed the 1.5 degree level. Um, and some people have, have you know, I was interested to see Michael Mann, who's a very well-known climate scientist. He was sort of saying that everybody's been a bit, do me by saying, oh, we're going to exceed because it's not permanent. But it does mean that for one year, the average temperature will be above 1.5 degrees. Whereas currently it's at around 1.1, 1.2. Um, so that's a big change, really. Uh, so it's not permanent. So there will still be fluctuations. But I think the um, what the WMO is saying is that it will be more frequent that we will exceed it on any in any given year so even though it's not permanent it reminds me of you know in Ireland when the weather forecast goes there's going to be showers and eventually the showers are going to join up and become rain um so this is kind of what strikes me about this it's going to be temporary until it's not you know and it looks like it's all heading in the wrong direction
2: on, you know, the, the analogy you made there to the the weather forecast, you know, sometimes the weather forecast gets the weather wrong. It does. Um, so what I want to ask you is, um, it had said in that report or in that article that for the years 2017 to 2021, the likelihood of exceeding the 1.5 degrees was 10%. Um, and now it's leaped up or like increased up to 66%. Is that right? That's the yep. likelihood. Um, but what I want to ask is if the WMO were wrong, in their initial estimations? Uh, like, is there a possibility, were they wrong? Why is that increase taken such a huge leap? Like, were they wrong in the first instance? Were they conservative in their initial estimations? Like, do we, do we genuinely need to panic about this? I'm playing a devil advocate here.
1: Well, if I, if I can uh, take that one, I think um, science is always a moving target. It's never a mm-hmm. fixed point. So that's the best estimate at that time. And then as yeah. more data comes in, and of course, as more pollution goes up, right? Because you have to remember, this is, you know, this is the whole situation is, is fluid and dynamic. Uh, so, and they've got to keep reassessing. What we do find generally over time is that the estimates are getting more accurate. The, the, yeah. the, 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 the range of inaccuracy is being reduced and the modeling is getting better. And also, of course, we have a lot of. We can also hindcast many of these models. In other words, we can we can run the same model runs backwards to see how they would have anticipated what actually happened. And there's okay, the, yeah. what we're finding is that models are getting really, really good at this. And a lot of the wrinkles in the early models have been have been have been sort of leveled out or, or, or ironed out, and now. Unfortunately, these models are—they're—they're they're telling us that the rate of change is accelerating, and I think, think that's the clearest thing that's coming through. And the one point five degrees—I know it's a—it is a, a totemic number, uh, and yes, we may shoot through it, and yes, we may fall back again. I don't share Michael Mann's um, uh, how do we say sense of calm about this because if we were on some kind of global trajectory to rapidly reduce emissions across all sectors, then I would say, Mm -hmm. sure, we can afford an overshoot and we will overshoot, but we're not. We're still pumping between, depending on how you calculate it, between 36 and 50 billion tons of carbon and uh, carbon equivalent, including methane and other gases, into the atmosphere every year. And of course, In the case of CO2, these are basically forever gases. They'll be there heating the planet up for the next 100, maybe 500, maybe 1,000 years. And, you know, yes, we will bounce under and over the 1.5 degree level. But once we finally breach 1.5, we're heading on for 2, we're heading on for 2.5, we're heading on for 2.7, maybe even 3 degrees this century. Uh, We're heading into a completely... Different world, and that—that's the message. And I think to 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 echo Anna's point, it is—I find it just completely baffling that this isn't front page news every single day of the week. These yeah. are this is the the unraveling of the life support systems for our planet, and yet somehow or other, uh, this is—I uh, think what somebody described as a hyper object. Uh, it's so vast uh, in every sense that that it's almost. It's almost like the air that surrounds us. It's everywhere, we depend on it, mm-hmm. and yet it's completely invisible to us.
0: Yeah. Mm. That's encouraging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. But I mean, and, and like, and don't forget too that that that's 2.7 degrees or three degrees of heating that we're on track for is with the action plans that are currently in place. That's that's if those action plans are actually implemented.
1: That's completely correct, Anna. You, that That is a, at the moment, on our current trajectory, those figures represent an absolute best case scenario.
2: Wow. So actually we could be, if we're honest with ourselves, on track for even higher.
1: Sure. And also, uh, what we also have to consider are feedbacks. For example, I was reading a piece the other day uh, about the massive increase in coal burning in India. And in China. And why are they burning more coal? Because they're having monster heat waves, which is forcing more and more people to depend on air conditioning, which Mm -hmm. is overwhelming the grid, which is causing them to recommission more and more coal fired plants. So that's called, uh, as you know, a positive feedback. But unfortunately, that's in the scientific sense of the word. Uh, From our point of view, there's nothing positive about it at all. But it, it underlines the point that you can get what are, what, what are sometimes described as cascading failures, where one system trips, a bit like a trip switch in a house, and it sets yep. off the other switches to trip. And at the moment, we're beginning, uh, well, I don't say beginning, who am I kidding? We're well into the, to the point where our, our basic systems are breaking down one after the other. And the, the clearest way I think about this is to, to take the um, Stockholm Resilience Center's uh, work they've done on the nine key planetary boundaries. These yep. are the, these are the as we know the, the limits within which uh, humanity uh, has to op- has to remain inside these planetary limits in order to maintain a, sp- a safe sp- space for operation we have breached five of these nine limits and to translate oh. yeah to translate that into human terms that's like saying that you've got heart failure liver disease your pancreas is shot and um, your kidneys are failing the, the, you know the, these these ares plan- great. <laughs> hmm? yeah
0: yes <laughs> great well, ap- like, well exactly yeah. and, and yeah. it all burn yeah and, yeah and I think
1: it's it's a thing and I suppose it is a strange thing we have to get everything right we have yeah. to we have to get the biodiversity part right we've got to get the ecosystem restoration part right we've got to get the climate part right we have to Fix all of these things simultaneously. It isn't sufficient, by the way, that we magic up a way of reducing um, global temperatures. Uh, if the ecological collapse continues at full at full pace, we're snookered anyway. So it is a it's a it's a all of the above. And I, I think I know I often speak with with uh, people from the ecology argument, and they feel that the climate people people like me get too much airtime, and they say, you know, we're we're ignoring biodiversity, and and I think they have a point because the climate issue, you know, I know we say it doesn't get enough coverage, but it gets a hell of a lot more than biodiversity. And yet biodiversity is, uh, you know, in terms of, of human uh, thriving and more to the point, human survival, uh, we can't do that without, without a functioning um, ecosystem. I mean, this is so obvious, it, I'm almost ashamed to have to say it, but every time, every public presentation I give, I make the point that our economic and our social systems are wholly owned subsets of a functioning biosphere because Absolutely. it's incredible to have to say that to people but you just have to remind them that you try you try all your economic and social dreams and hopes inside a dead landscape nothing yeah. works and uh, and yet here we are saying the <laughs> saying the obvious over and over again
0: but it, And look, that brings us to our other big story this week about the um, researchers at Queen's found that 50% of Earth's species are now in decline. So it's more than previously thought. They looked at it a different way and they said, um, this is, you know, and, and this seems to be a recurring theme in all these spheres is that it's worse than we previously thought or it's accelerating. Um, but they are finding that 50% are in decline now and we are so disconnected from that. Um when you see and to your point john about you know we i don't think we even think about everything we do being connected to the biosphere or that we are part of the biosphere i think it's just it's outside of our day-to-day comprehension about it i think um which is obviously a problem for us and a problem for the biosphere
1: i think that i think that's fair uh we do know and and again one of the numbers that i i use on this is from uh, vaclav Schmil, uh and he looks at it from a, a number of different points of view. One of them, which really sticks in my mind, is to consider uh, mammals on Earth and consider that humans and our livestock now comprise ninety six, sorry, 95.8% of the mammalian biomass on our planet. It's a, just a breathtaking number. And another number that I kind of often use in association with that is that uh, the year that I started primary school, 1970, um, to 2020, take that 50-year period, um, we have lost 69% of the wild animals in the world by number, by quantity, have disappeared. So that's 69% in 50 years. That's we're losing them at more than the rate of 1% per annum. And these are the unraveling.
0: Those are the ones we know about because we don't even know about all the insects.
1: Indeed. Now, many of these in Fairness Anna are are estimates across various yep. they, like they are, these are not just mammalian, by the way. This is right across yep. um amphibians, uh, etc. So it is it is across the animal kingdom. We also know that 70% of the world's birds are. Chickens and turkeys they are livestock, right? And it is something we we Ugh. need to come to terms with that we have fundamentally re-engineered one species has fundamentally re-engineered planet Earth for its own benefit. And you might say, well, mm-hmm. you know, go us, right? And in a sense, it's a, we're an incredibly uh, we're an incredibly successful species in the narrowest sense. of The word I think you've got to go back to sign. We're up. an
0: invasive species, is what we are. Um, mm. I saw somebody. I've, don't know where I saw that somebody describing humans as an invasive species, as in they come in and destroy the ecosystem everywhere. Um and actually E. O. Wilson is a, is a famous um biologist, described that how humans, when humans arrived in Hawaii or New Zealand, or you know, mm. pick a pick a place, the first thing to go was the big mammals. Yes. Because mm-hmm. the humans would kill them. Mm-hmm. And any of the big animals were destroyed. And then the then the ecosystem was changed radically. Um so we're the worst invasive species.
1: Yeah, uh, we, we certainly are. And, and well, at least that's how we play out. Let's just say if the rest of the species on Earth could, could have a citizens assembly, let's say, right, <laughs> they would vote us off. There's no question no, about really. that. And I suppose in a sense, it's the accumulation of our, I guess, our, our overpowered brains, our ability to utilize the world around us, our ability, for example, to, to harness um, you know, fossilized uh, yeah. an, animal juice from, <laughs> or, or plant juice from 150 million years ago. And, and we have this incredible technical ability, and yet our, our, the part of our brains that our philosophical development lags, I think, centuries behind. We, we're still behaving as if we were just stumbling off the Serengeti. And yet here we are, this hyper-species, we've invaded every corner of the planet. Uh, Our impacts now can be measured from the seafloor to the edge of space and everywhere in between. Uh, And yet at no point have we developed the ability to reflect on what that means uh, to be part of a living planet. And I think that disconnection rather than narrowing, I think it's increasing. And I think... Uh, yeah. I think... I think
0: the more, the more threatened we are, the less we are willing to engage with it. I mean, you said we're, we're not even willing to reflect... We're not even willing to reflect on our economic system or mm. our institu- social institutions that we've built ourselves. So we're not even willing to reflect on those in the context of what we're doing to the planet. Never mind the bigger, the whole bigger picture.
1: Yeah, and I mean... Take economics for a moment, as you know, uh, our president Michael D made a, a famous intervention yeah, on economics recently, and and he was hundred percent correct. Uh, I mean, as in relation to the the living planet, and in relation to to biophysical reality, um, economics is is a I don't know, it's a shell game. Uh, the, we've been sold the notion that we can have infinite growth, and it's it's so absurd that you know. Uh, a child in fifth or sixth class in primary school can tell you, "Well, well, sorry, sir or miss, nothing, nothing. Of course, not, nothing can grow forever. Uh, at some point, it has to level out." Yet, our economic uh, gurus say, no, no, no. We can solve every problem by just having more growth. So are you unhappy about inequality? Oh, well, we're not going to fix that. We'll just have we some growth yep. and we'll, we'll have some growth and then we'll trickle down to the poor. So we won't have to fix yeah. inequality. We'll just grow our way out of it. Have you got debt? Don't worry. We'll grow our way out of it to service the debt. So all our problems, we've developed this, this, this uh, cure-all elixir called growth. The problem with this elixir is, of course, it's highly toxic. And to make sense of this crazy elixir that we're we're guzzling down, uh, I often think of uh, William Nordhaus, the the uh, the famous, the so called father of uh, climate economics, who won yeah. a, a Nobel, such as it is in economics, in twenty eighteen. And in his Nobel speech, William Nordhaus, the most senior climate economist in the world, said, and I quote, that the optimal temperature this century, where we balance the impacts on humans with the cost of the economy, is four degrees Uh centigrade. This isn't, this is a cult. This is an absolute cult. It's four
0: degrees Uh, centigrade above pre industrial. Oh, above pre industrial, yeah. We're talking
1: about basically what, what our most senior, our most revered economist, right uh, the guy put up in a plinth by his colleagues the guy who has wow. inspired a generation of economists is effectively uh, for all intents and purposes this is a death cult yeah so shout out to economists say
0: hey. <laughs> <laughs> and i'm like i mean even we've seen reports this week i mean if you see the floods in northern italy in the last couple of weeks where you had i think Twelve thousand people or more were displaced by those. And Thirteen I mean, actually, dead. Thirty thousand. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's and then Pakistan just on a scale much worse last year. Um, so we're already seeing those effects. But yet we're getting the headlines in Ireland that oh, Ireland might have a Mediterranean climate. Whoop whoop.
1: Yeah, yeah. That that was a particularly depressing uh, headline. And. I'm I'm sorry to say, but I I trace it back to an interview given by a UCC scientist who used that exact phrase. Then Uh he then he qualified in the next sentence saying, well, it it mightn't suit us. But you see, he had the damage was done. And this is something that science communicators, including scientists, really need to understand. If you throw out hostages to fortune like that, then it's hard to blame the media when they snap them up. Now, mind you, uh, it's still possible. uh, But I listened to that interview and I'm afraid I I just had my head in my hand saying, you never... Say that when you say Mediterranean style climate, everyone in Ireland goes high five, well, high five. You know, <laughs> yeah. uh, we're going to be going grapes in Glenageary, right? Yeah. This unfortunately is just nonsensical, and I think we as communicators and, and anyone is a communicator. As soon as you start talking on this subject, you need before you do that, you really need to reflect on your language really, really carefully,
0: right? So I, we have to be very careful now, <laughs> <out> here, alarm <laughs> no no clock shuts down. No yeah. bad language anymore. Um. Well,
1: you know what I mean? I think, you see, no, that no, there, there, there are so many people out there looking for, for a Pollyanna solution to this. A soundbite. Sa- yeah. yeah, and a soundbite and a headline. And the problem is, headlines like that, they're lapped up, they're swept around mm. social media. Yeah. And... You know, people like us spend months trying to undo the damage from one headline yeah. like that. And and it's just, yeah. it's so, oh my God, you know. Uh, well, just, here's an mm.
0: example. Here's an example from this week mm. where on RTE, farmers are worried over the impact of re-wetting peatlands. Um, and John, I know you've been out on this, um, and this is in the context of the... European Nature Restoration Law, and you kind of look at that and go, what could be wrong with a law that looks at trying to restore nature? Uh, but yet the headline is farmers are worried about rewetting, and one of the and I, I know you were on the other night on Upfront with Katie Hannan and this John, and like. One of the things that really frustrates me about this is nowhere have I seen a description or a proper definition of what rewetting actually is so
2: before you go into rewetting, yes can you what what is the nature less nature restoration law because I'm ashamed to say it in front of John Gibbons, but <laughs> I have not been reading these stories. So give me the quick rundown,
1: please. Sure. This is a draft law that's been, that's been pushed through by the or been developed by the European Commission and, and it's, it's rumbling through the European Parliament. And the idea is to have a, a, a restoration of 20% of the land and the seas in the European Union by 2030. It's connected to the EU biodiversity strategy, which wants to see us um, reduce our use of uh, pesticides and basically to, to ease the pressure on uh, nature basically, to, to mm-hmm. call, I will not say call off the war on nature, but to have a truce and leave uh, nature some room to survive. Uh, Anna, you mentioned E.O. Wilson earlier. Uh, he wrote yep. a famous book called Half Earth. And the thesis of that book, for those who haven't read it, is that in order for humans to survive, and indeed, for in order for, for life on Earth to survive, we have to basically give up half the land space of the planet and give it back to nature to allow natural systems to simply recuperate in order to sustain life on earth that was the that was the basic premise of his book and of course people said that's impossible you can't do it you know it's unfair we need blah 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 but it's really simple choice we either make space for nature or we accept collapse that's yeah. the choice we have and unfortunately like in that debate the other night that's the point i tried probably failed to make that we're in the throes of the sixth mass extinction event. This is a global emergency for which we have no precedent. This is an all hands on deck moment, not a pointing fingers and demanding that everybody, bar ourselves, does something. And yeah. yet, that I'm sorry to say, that message hasn't uh, hasn't landed. And people, particularly, unfortunately, many people in, in who see themselves as custodians of rural Ireland. Uh, are determined, in fact, to turn this into some kind of culture war, to suggest that it's just Greenies, Dublin, you know, South Dublin Greenies, who are trying to do us down for some reason or other. uh, And drive. what was the phrase they used? They they
0: want to flood our land.
1: They want to flood the land and drive us off the land. You know, I mean, some of the stats that I didn't get to use the other night, and I'm delighted to have the opportunity to reprise them today. (laughs) Right, Yeah. let let me give you this one, right? Peatlands cover... Three percent of the land surface of the world, yet they hold twice the carbon of the, in all the world's forests combined. Oh, right? yeah, they're so, the,
0: second only to the oceans in that, terms of that is, carbon sequestration. Is, that is
1: correct. Yeah. And not only that, but healthy peatlands absorb on average four to eight tons of CO2 per hectare per annum. Unhealthy drain peatlands emit up to 40 tons of CO2 per annum. Unfortunately, people whose job is driving a bulldozer or an excavator out onto those bogs don't give a damn. And this is what we're up against. We're up against people who are making money out of this, against people who are trying to stand up and defend nature. And you'll find the folks, uh, I'm sure you've heard the phrase that it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on him not understanding it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the famous Upton Sinclair line. But this is the situation that we're in that narrow vested interests, who, I might add, have achieved almost complete capture of government. They have, I mean and are, the media. Are, and well, sadly, they they seem to have bewitched the media. Yep. But they've captured government and bewitched the media. And we see the media allowing itself to have existential arguments framed in terms of narrow sectoral interests. And I'll tell you, this will be chiseled on our headstone. How did we let yeah. this happen? And it's a media yeah. failure writ large.
2: Can I hear go back hear. and ask about the, the nature restoration law? So <laughs> Bring us back um, here, go on. Yep. No, just because I, I was wondering last, the other day when I was watching um, Katie Hannon's show. Is it a law, like it's being proposed by the EU, but it's not a law in Ireland just yet, is it?
1: no it isn't it it is it hasn't gotten through the european parliament yet now if it okay. if it gets through the european parliament it will be transposed automatically into irish law so it will become a okay. law it is less it requires us to do less than our own climate yeah. action plan number 1 uh, but it, it is a favourite blood sport in ireland of blaming uh, Europe for everything, yep. right? It's a yep. fabulous yeah. for politicians to point at those awful Europeans, the ones who keep giving us money and improving our roads, uh, yeah. and and uh, insisting that we bring in humane laws. Those awful Europeans uh, who keep telling us what to do and how to live our lives. Um, yeah. But yeah, so this nature restoration, it, at the moment, it's not a law. It hasn't it hasn't been enacted, yeah. and in fact, uh, concerted efforts are being made to kill it at birth to make sure it never gets yep. through. Because <laughs> a, a related part of it is. Um, the EU's farm to fork strategy which again dates back a year or two and this was yeah. all about easing the pressure from particularly from the from the agricultural systems yeah. and again you might say why do we keep going on about agriculture it's just a fact of life that most of the land of Europe is, is, is occupied by um, agriculture that's just the mm-hmm. way it goes and therefore yeah. you can't have land restoration without agricultural reform. And we see at the moment, for example, the CAP, the Common Agricultural Policy, the planning and the funding for CAP is largely determined by powerful uh, agri-industrial lobbyists like uh, Copa Cogia, who who are the the, the big agri-lobby group, uh, to which various Irish um, organisations are affiliated. And they exercise enormous power in the halls of Europe uh, at making sure that as much money as possible gets transferred from the European taxpayer into the pockets of the uh, agri-industrial PLCs, uh, they pay lip service, obviously, to the interests of farmers, but mostly it's about agri agri PLCs. But they've captured the, the the farm lobby, who in many cases, and I would say in Ireland as well, many parts of the farm lobby are like the out offices of the of the agri PLCs. They do an awful lot of the the dirty work for the agri PLCs.
0: Right, and they mm-hmm. are very much in tune with our government, unfortunately. Um, so, and we what we are seeing also is that we have. MEPs, Irish MEPs from Sinn Féin, from Fianna Fáil, from Fine Gael, all working against getting this um, law through the European Parliament as well. So, um, so we we have as a, one of our actions coming up later is um, to make sure to get onto our MEPs and um, let us, let them know how we feel about this. So. Um, so in terms of, I don't think, I think we are probably almost out of time. I dying. have
2: one more thing I want to say. Well,
0: because on,
2: I am from the countryside and I can feel it inside of me. Last night, or yeah, so we were watching, I was watching back the Katie Hannon show last night. We were recording this on Thursday, yada, yada, yada. But I felt, I felt, I really do feel empathy for farmers. I like
0: the farmer lobbying groups do not represent them. Yeah, Yeah. there's like, I know lots
2: of farmers that don't share those views and that don't want, and I can also understand as a business owner how sometimes when you're up against the wall and you're not sure where the money is going to come from and you've been pushed into a, you know, a corner by a certain group and then you're listening to people who are like you, that you think are like you and they're fear-mongering. It's just this whole, there's a whole economic system of emotions in the lobby, in in the farming industry, if that analogy makes any sense at all. Um, But yeah, I think, I, I, I think, I'm just saying it because I noticed as we were having this conversation I do feel a little bit of uncomfort of like oh the poor don't be at them so yeah it's just a really really complex kind of issue isn't it it is not it like yeah I really do kind of feel for people affected by, not affected by this law, but affected by this conversation, the emotion that this conversation stirs, because it's very difficult yeah. when you're being scaremongered. Like yeah, this.
1: I I, th- I think you're right, Kira, and I did try to make that point the other night, that there are yeah. people, there are cynical people, uh, and I included Michael Fitzmaurice, so I'm so if i named Absolutely. them there i'll name them here who are yeah. who are making political capital out of stirring up fears and also by the way out of spreading division and and discord between for example uh yeah. people in rural ireland and environmentalists they they want to to other people who are concerned who who, who have i believe legitimate concerns about about mm-hmm. climate about environment they want to other us and the reason they want To do that is that it's a lot easier than addressing the actual questions that have been put forward. You simply demonize the individual. And I completely agree with you. I said, having grown up in rural Ireland, uh, many people, I would suggest most people in rural Ireland, the same as most people in urban Ireland, given half a chance, most people are basically decent but yeah. we're, we're easy, we're, sometimes we can be easily led and we can certainly be easily misled. And now in the era of WhatsApp groups and and uh, mm-hmm. social media, the spread of the viral spread of hate and of ugly rhetoric, I'm sorry, it, it is now on steroids and and as yeah. somebody on the receiving end of this from time to time, I, I, I recognize it, but I also recognize that they're not the people that I bump into when I'm down in rural Ireland, as I am pretty regularly. Most people mm-hmm. one-to-one are fantastic. Uh, uh, yep. Like you go and chat to a farmer and they'll tell you about what they're doing. They'll tell you their issues, their challenges and so on. And and they'll have they'll look you in the eye and you'll have a proper conversation. But this isn't what happens with the, ret- yeah. the rhetoric coming out of farming groups. So I'm, I'm glad yeah. you brought that point up, Kira. I think it's incredibly important not to not to play the game and to get involved in the name and shame thing here. The fo- my focus, and I hope I've been clear about this, has been on groups like Copacogia and their Irish uh, equivalents and on yeah. cynic- cynical politicians. It is not, it really isn't, because they're the ones who are making political hay and economic hay out of misleading uh, people in rural Ireland. Because, you know, everyone in rural Ireland... Suffers when water quality collapses, when air quality uh, suffers, and when yeah. we get a biodiversity collapse. Everyone in rural Ireland suffers, and I think this idea of playing the urban, uh, to be honest, the urban-rural card, is the oldest trope in the books on on Absolutely. the book. And and really, personally, as somebody who has you know grew up in rural Ireland. Uh, lives now in, in, in an urban area but has one foot in an outer rural island on a weekly mm-hmm. basis. I'll I'll be in Kilkenny at the weekend. I, you know, I really, really object to this attempt at driving a wedge. And I know other people yeah. say, well, you know, people like me, we're by speaking out on this, we're 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 inflaming the situation. And in a sense, I understand that criticism. And but I wish that it was the agricultural organisations that were were engaging on climate change. For example, if you go to the IFA's so-called environment page, the Environment Committee page, basically its whole um, remit is to challenge environmental regulation. They have no engagement. There isn't a single article that I've ever found on the IFA's website explaining to farmers about the climate emergency and how it'll affect their future. Now, you might say, well, why should they? But if you go to the NFU, the National Farmers Union, the the UK Union uh, website, which I have done, it is full of information about the science of climate change. So what is it in Ireland that makes our agricultural representative organisation so refractory, so anti-science? And it breaks my heart because Irish farmers are not refractory and anti-science, but their leadership are. And and I don't get it. And... I think as well, the leadership like to hide behind the members and say, if you criticize you know our policy, you're attacking farmers. And I'm sorry, yeah, yeah. that is a lazy, lazy trope.
0: Yeah. In fact, if you go to the IFA um, website, you'll find them boasting about how their lobbying helped water down the climate action law in 2021, for example. They actually say that yes. publicly. Oh, yeah. Um, they're delighted that their lobbying worked well with Fianna Fáil and Fine and mm. um, So they're very clear about it. They're not really hiding that at all, you know, but it just it it is a real um, absence of leadership, I think, on, on a lot of different fronts.
1: Yeah. And I've written about this a number of times, including in the business post, how the European Union have sent people to Ireland to point out that Ireland almost uniquely in Europe demonizes environmental defenders. Yeah. They've actually really? pointed out that we have we have a particularly bad record of attacking environmental defenders in this country. Uh, they, they singled out, for example, these concerted attacks and attempts at defunding on Tashka when it stood up to Glanbia over the, right. uh, yeah. the cheese factory down in, down in uh, Waterford. Uh, and and unprecedented attacks. If you go onto the FINA website, you'll say, there's one headline I saw that said you know, I think it's Antashka is the biggest threat to rural Ireland.
0: Yeah, Ho- they they've described Antashka as um, terrorists, eco-terrorists wow. and, the, and the weaponized wing of the environmental movement. Those were actual yeah. words that they used. Yep. So I'm going to shift us now because I think we could spend, we could probably have a program on each of those topics. Um, and we Yeah, definitely. I want to bring you back for that, John. Um, sure. Well, I'm, I'm there for it. There's so much in every, in all of those topics that just may lead to great discussion. Um, but I thought we might finish with a little... Um, song. Song. <laughs> yeah. We, we like to have some musical interludes on this show. So um, one of the uh, headlines that has caught my attention this week was Chaos at the Shell AGM. Speaking of... Um, Speaking of companies that are burning the planet for profit, the Shell AGM was disrupted by climate protesters, but I thought they had a particularly um, interesting way of doing it. So let's have a listen to what they did.
2: Go to hell, Shell, and
0: don't you come back no more, no more, no more, no more. more. Go to hell, Shell, and don't you come back no more. Now listen, now listen, don't you say,
1: Operations
0: in the Old North Sea They got permission from the NSTA So don't you put the blame on me Sit down! Go to hell, Shell And don't you come back no more No more, no more, no Okay, more, that gives us a flavour of it, but uh, Go to hell, Shell, it's uh, very catchy, I think And uh, uh, maybe we could uh, add an IFA version in there as well I, I,
1: I, I, thought, I thought you were going to play Dolly Parton Have you heard her amazing new, <laughs> new, new song? Oh, so yeah, she, She. No. I mean, if, 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 if you didn't like Dolly Parton enough already, which I must admit I do, um, yeah. she has a new climate change song and okay. uh, and it includes so awesome. the wonderful line about kick him in the ass, which I just, I, I'm not sure what she rhymed with ass, but she's basically saying, you know, these people are trying to kill us and we need to kick him in the ass.
0: Excellent. Oh my God, she is such a legend. She's
1: such a hero. Uh, and, uh, you know, yeah, maybe that'll feature. Uh, we can have a, We can have a, Do- a Dolly segment on a, on a, yeah. on a future episode.
0: <laughs> okay, go to hell, Shell, and kick them in the ass, Dolly. Well said. Um, so, for I think one of our actions for this week will be to, and we'll put a, a link in the show notes. Write to your MEPs and TDs about the nature restoration law. There are petitions to sign. Tell them how important it is and that we want to see it going through. And so we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Any other actions from anyone? Or will we wrap it up?
2: I found a petition uh, from Greenpeace to ban private jets.
0: So we can put that in the show notes as well. Very good. Excellent. So let's take some action. I think that's what keeps us all ticking over and um, out of the sea of despair. Um, John, thank you you. so much for joining us. And really, um, it's great to hear you. Having time to tell us more about your Mm. thoughts and share some of the stats and the Um, stories—they don't give you enough time on Irish media, I would say. Um, Yeah. So it was great to great to have this. Opportunity with you, it's really, really appreciated. Um, No,
1: delighted to be here, and and exactly that. I I do love the the long form, the the podcast, and and also where possible to to try to to use it to reach audiences beyond. uh, I mean, this is a great audience. I think the the climate alarm clock. Am I allowed to say this? Does a great job. Uh, Okay, Uh, uh, we got that out of the way. Yeah, and uh, (laughs) but for example, you know, I appear from time to time, say with Eamon Dunphy on his podcast, which is a completely different audience, Mario Rosenstock, and so on, Uh, and. And I do, I do, I love these conversations. But I do also really like to do some outreach as well to get into the mm-hmm. places that uh, are not having these conversations because yeah. that's where you know we need to cover all our bases. Yeah, uh, the, 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 these the conversation we had this morning. I, I, I hope it's useful. I've certainly enjoyed it. But but we also need to make sure we're reaching beyond our our bubbles. Uh, and 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 that's part of my commitment is to try to reach across where possible, uh, and to, to, uh, kind of find people where they are and, uh, hit them with some science and, and hopefully, uh, encourage, encourage some, some, uh, engagement, at least, at least some thought because, you know, we're in, we're in a, we're in a pickle and, uh, it's probably best that we kind of pull together to, to get, get ourselves out of this particular jam if we can. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Well, thank you so much for all that you do, John, and keep up the great work. And we're all big fans, so delighted to have you on. Uh, So that is it for this week. If you enjoyed the conversation, please share the podcast. I think everybody needs to hear it. it, Share it outside your bubble, maybe, so that um, we can have a broader conversation about it. And if you haven't already, please take a moment to rate and review the podcast as that helps us reach more listeners and share it with people who might like to hear it uh, and then finally our reminder that we are completely voluntary and if you would like to support the work we do you can do that through buy me a coffee forward slash the climate alarm that's it for this week thank you john and thank you kira and we will be back next week hopefully all going well thanks
2: anna thanks john thank you so much.
1: thanks anna thanks kira
0: Go to hell shell and kick them in the ass, dolly.